For years, the American public has been victimized by the so-called cinematic geniuses, telling us time and again to see inferior movies, leaving us bitter and lost with no return. But no more! This travesty of justice cannot and will not continue, because we now have the Cinema Judge! Hello and welcome to the Cinema Judge. To all my regulars, welcome back. Now, if you're new to the show, let me briefly tell you what the show's about. We love movies. We love sharing movies. I get information from the studios, and I put it together to make one giant infomercial. I pile it together, being the judge, and I give it to you, the jury, and you make up your own mind. I'm not here to tell you not to see a movie, or even to see a movie. I'll tell you if I like it or not. But I will never, ever tell you not to see a movie. Because we all come from different parts of life. Our, tra- our travels and road trips are entirely different. So who am I to tell you not to see a movie? That is just insane to me. I just want to share movies with you. Consider this your movie oasis. Because the world is a crazy, crazy world. And sometimes we just need a place to go away. Get away from it all. A few minutes to just escape. And this is what I want to do for you. Provide you with information, interviews, scenes, anything I can do. Here's the evidence. And you make up your own mind. I'm not going to yell about Hollywood, actors, actresses, anything like that. That's not our jam here. I just want to share movies with you. And just, just, just talk movies and escape. Because any movie is somebody's favorite movie. But today, approaching the bench, we have... The Baz Luhrmann newest film, Elvis. Now here's a brief synopsis about this movie. It's about the life of American rock star Elvis Presley. From childhood to becoming a rock star and movie star. But also, it covers the complex relationship with his manager, the Colonel. Now there has been a lot said about this individual. And the Colonel in this film is played by the incredibly talented Tom Hanks. So leave it up to you. Was the colonel a villain or just a manager trying to propel a kid into superstardom? So here's the trailer for Elvis. There are some who'd make me out to be the villain of this here story. Let's don't let a good thing die. Are you born with destiny? Or does it just come knocking at your door? There's a young singer from Memphis, Tennessee. Give him a warm hayride welcome. Mr. Elvis Presley. Get a haircut, buttercup. In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero.
Wish to promote you, Mr. Presley. Are you ready to fly? I'm ready. Ready to fly. Tomorrow, all of America will be talking about Elvis Presley. I can't move. I can't sing. Some people want to put me in jail. So Wells moving. They might put me in jail for walking across the street, but you're a famous white boy. The way you sing is God-given, so there can't be nothing wrong with it. Two odd, lonely children reaching for eternity. The greatest show on earth. Elvis has left the building. So the question you have to ask yourself, how much do you know about Elvis? And does anybody really know Elvis? And more importantly, does anybody know about the true relationship between him and in the Colonel. But up first, we're going to hear from the director, and he's going to talk about addressing, he didn't really want to make a biopic per se, he just wanted to address the times that it came from. Well, he's a director talking about the movie. You know, I didn't really want to do a biopic about Elvis. I just thought if you want to understand America in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, he's a great canvas to explore big ideas on. I mean, what's so interesting about Elvis he was the first ever idol. There was no pop idol that was globally famous before Elvis Presley. And because I'm working with Korean pop idols, that's something they really understand. And something else you really understand is when at the height of your fame, you suddenly have to go off to the army, as Elvis did. And one of the big dramatic questions in the movie is, when he goes off to the army, will he be successful again when he comes back? And that's a big dramatic idea. Now, the other big theme in the movie is the relationship between Colonel Tom Parker, played by Tom Hanks, and Elvis. And that's the relationship between management and the artist. And I think that's something a lot of people in the Korean entertainment industry understand, also the fans. They really understand this relationship between the cell and the soul of an artist. And the last thing I think that you really get to get out of this movie And it's true to the fans. You really understand young people. They really understand the price of fame. 
that what it looks like on the outside is not necessarily what it is on the inside. Now, you might be asking yourself, what else has he directed? Well, let me paint a quick picture for you. This guy has such vision. What an incredible director. He did Australia, Gatsby, Moulin Rouge, just to name a few. But with kind of a side note on this, Australia was so big. It was such a sweeping film. He's actually gone back and put in other stuff that he edited out, and he's made it into a a TV series. I don't know know if it's a six-part. I can't remember exactly what. But if you want to know more about that, first watch Australia. And it starred Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman. It's just really fun to hear how a director goes back to a project and realizes, I could tell a whole different story with different parts, even a different ending, all those kind of things. And that's just a quick side note. But coming up next, we're going to have the guy who plays Elvis, Austin Butler. And he's going to talk a little bit about Elvis. He was the American dream, really. I mean, he he sort of embodies that, that kid who comes from absolutely nothing. Raised in Tupelo, um, and then, and then becomes the most famous man on the planet, and uh, and 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 then he he also embodied so many eras of of time. You know, I mean, it, it feels like he lived a hundred years, and it, but it's amazing that he was only here for forty-two. But the fact that you can see him in the fifties as as this young, vibrant nineteen year old kid, um, and you, you look on the Dorsey Brothers performances or on the Ed Sullivan Show and uh, or Milton Berle, and it feels like that's a whole other life from the sixties and all the films that he did in that time and, and from '68 Special and. And then the 70s feel like this whole other era. Um, so he spends so much time. And uh, and it's such a fascinating thing that somebody to have that sort of uh, mark on this world. Now, coming up next, we're going to play a clip for you. Now, in this clip, it's one of the first times Elvis goes on stage. He's standing there, the packed auditorium. He's all nervous. He's really kind of freaking out. And then it gets heckled from the audience. But that's that little spark. That little says, ah, this guy's not going to get to me. I'm on fire now. And he just takes off. And he starts singing. He starts, you know, moving his stuff. And then he starts doing what Elvis does on stage. And then eventually the girls are getting all whipped up. And of course, then the guys are like, wait, you can't do that. Calm down. You know how insecure guys are. But that's what the scene is. Just showing us. When he first went on stage, he's like how most of us would be, freaking out. But then that little spark for some arrogant pinhead, it motivated him to say, nah, not today, buddy. I'll show you how it's done. But in the scene also, this is where the colonel sees Elvis perform, and his eyes just light up thinking, this guy is my meal ticket. And this is what kicked it all off. Come back, baby. I wanna play house with you. Get a haircut, buttercup. (laughs) 
In that moment, in a flash of lightning, I watched that skinny boy in the pink suit transform into a superhero. Well, you may go to college, you may go to school, you may have a pink Cadillac, but don't you make nobody's room, now, baby. Come back, baby, come on. Come back, baby, come on. Come back, baby, I won't play Halloween. Well, listen, I'm telling you, baby, what I'm talking about. Come on back to me, little girl, so we can play some Halloween, baby. Come back, baby, come on. Come back, baby. We're going to hear next from Tom Hanks, and he's going to talk about how he approached the character of the Colonel, about seeing him as a guy who says, like he says in the interview, yes, he's not going to tell Picasso what to do. He's just there to help him along. So this is Tom Hanks talking about his approach. My desire, my fascination, my continuous drive was to, to have the Colonel become a guy who said yes to Picasso. Never, no, here's what you do. We're not going to do this. I mean, there was a standard kind of like manager, performer kind of thing. Let me tell you what we're going to do, kid. We're going to go like this. And the colonel, the colonel was not that. He was this other odd, fascinating amalgamation of Carney, you know, an old carnival guy, a wicked smart businessman, dime-squeezing skinflint, you know, but also a pioneer in a big type of show business that did not exist until Elvis Presley came along. Now, we're going to have a clip for you next. Now, in this scene, we have the Colonel and Elvis, right pretty much maybe after that concert, and they're on a Ferris wheel. And the Colonel's telling them, I could make you the biggest star in history. And it's just their banter about how it's going to be. Because, officially, allegedly, the guy that was on that tour wanted to fire Elvis from the tour. But then the colonel goes, oh, no, no. I'll leave the tour and I will manage you exclusively. Just you and me. And I don't know if this happened or not. And who knows, maybe it did. But I would love to find out how that conversation really went and where it happened and how it went down. Could you imagine... Here you see this guy, this incredibly talented person, and you know what you could do with that. And this person doesn't really officially know it yet. He wants to be great. He knows he can be great. But you are there at that first step. And if you mess it up, there goes your meal ticket. But so he had to, you know, play that just right. He couldn't try to, you know, ask for too much or whatever it is. And he had to walk that fine line. But knowing this is my lottery ticket. So here's that scene where the colonel is talking to Elvis about going, you me, kid, let's make history. Your future, Mr. Presley, blazing before you. Recording contracts, television, even Hollywood. You're great, Colonel. 
You are the best person I could ever hope to work with. And you know, this is something I, I had never said to nobody before. I believe I can be great too. Oh, no doubt, but we could be even greater together. But to achieve this, I need to represent you exclusively. Exclusively? Sir, I, I don't follow. What about Hank Snow? Hank, yes. He sent me here to fire you. Hank wants you off the tour. So I will have to leave Hank. We will both have to make sacrifices. I wasn't fooling when I told those other kids I was going to buy them a Cadillac one day. My boy, with me, you'll buy them two Cadillacs. A hundred? Two hundred. A million. <laughs> An aeroplane. A, a rocket ship. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Even not a rocket ship. My, my mama don't like me to fly. <laughs> well, what about you, Mr. Presley? Are you ready to fly? Yes, sir. I'm ready. Ready to fly. Well, here's the deal. First, you have to convince Elvis... But then you have to convince his parents. And up next, we're going to hear from Richard Roxburgh, who plays Vernon, Elvis's father. And he talks about how he approached his character because there wasn't a whole lot out there for him to you know, learn from. There's a couple interviews, but it's really interesting to listen to him of how he saw his father. Well, I found Vernon incredibly inscrutable um, in... In, in a lot of, in the interviews that you see that he did, um, and there's a few of them, there's not a lot, but there's a few. And in everything that you read about him, I found him incredibly opaque, I guess. And that was um, fascinating because, I guess because Elvis was so out there and so much the kind of polar opposite in so many ways and yet his dad was this kind of extremely reserved um you know very private domain and uh talking to baz about it it was like well how how are we going to unpick that how are we going to shed light on what not only what he was but what his his relationship with elvis was now finding that character trying to figure out where he stood and how he was in this next scene, we have the colonel. He's approaching the family saying, I want to manage your son. But the really, the cool trick here is, whether it was honest or just to, to manipulate, he approaches a father and says, aha, I want to be the guy who does this, but I want you to be this special position. And you, know, you just know probably in his head, the ego, yes, oh, I could help control this whole destiny also. But the colonel knows better because he knows who's going to run the operation. But he gives the illusion of to the father, hey, I'm here to help you help him. It's just a fun little dance. And who knows if this happened or not? I don't know. I wasn't there. But you just kind of start feeling the how the colonel played people just to, like puppets to say, this is what I want and I'm going to get it no matter what. Because in the end... He was always a carny. And I'm not saying carny in a bad word. It's just, that was his world. He knew how to play that world and to get people to you know do what he needs to do. So here's a scene with the colonel bringing in the parents to say, I want to bring this kid along. You could help. 
Sam Phillips is a good man we can trust. We don't know this colonel from a nail in a wall. Is there a lawyer representing the family? Oh, unnecessary. I am of the firm opinion that family is the most important thing in the world. In mind of that, I have taken the liberty of making these contracts out in the name of Elvis Presley Enterprises, a family business. And I was thinking Vernon Presley, business manager. What do you think, Daddy? Oh, uh, well, uh, I like it very much. <laughs> Mrs. Presley, your son has a unique gift. It's as though he has the strength of two men inside of him. Oh, Colonel, I would do anything to make sure my mama and daddy never have to live in no poverty ever again. Mama, it's gonna turn out so, so good. Now, how do you possibly prepare for this kind of role? You're a young actor. You've been offered this job as Elvis. How do you possibly prepare? Well, here's Austin Butler explaining how he approached it. I'm just going to drop everything and I'm just going to obsess. I'm going to allow myself to obsess. And, um, and so I, I just started reading and watching everything I could. Uh, on Elvis's life and on his friends and on his relationships and um, listen to only his music and I just treated it as though I already had the job and and so this was January two years ago and then in by about February um, they hadn't even started auditioning yet and I I sent Baz a uh, a video of me playing the piano and singing Unchained Melody. Now, that all being said, the commitment, the dedication, we're going to hear briefly from Tom Hanks talking about how he felt this young guy had to approach this role and the responsibility involved. There is a a risk and responsibility that Austin took on that, when the time came, had to be huge and intimate. At the same time. And I don't know how that man did it. And that's a pretty bold statement and compliment coming from Tom Hanks. Can you imagine Austin going, this is so cool. Tom Hanks saying that about me. Because I know, I don't know about you, I've been freaking out trying to play that role. Now up next, we're going to have an intimate scene that how Tom Hanks was kind of talking about. How not only did he have to be big when he was playing on stage, but there's some intimate scenes of a lot of emotion. Now, in this next clip, we have Elvis. He's like sitting in the closet, all upset. He's crying because his mother passed. But then the colonel is approaching him going, you know, you know, you got to step up. Because the colonel is telling him, I'm doing my best I can to take care of this world while you go overseas. Because in this scene, Elvis was going to eventually go off and join the service. So that was all the emotions going on. Your daddy is doing the best he knows how, but he is overwhelmed. He needs your help out there. I can't go out there. I just want to stay here forever. Oh, my boy. (laughs) No one could never replace her. But you listen to me. From this moment on, anything she would have done, I will carry out in her name. When you are overseas, I will stay here at home. 
and I will work, and I will worry. Now, we're going to hear next from the director, Buzz Lerman, and he's from the red carpet, so that's all the noise you can hear in the background. But he's going to talk about, you know, he was almost bummed that Awesome came along because he's like, oh, man, maybe I didn't have to make this movie because it's a big swing. But, of of course, he could handle it because he's a phenomenal director. But it's just kind of cool hearing him banter about that, saying, well, if I can't find the right person, I'm off the hook. This is him talking about that. I always said, if I can't find someone to play Elvis, I won't make the movie. And I was kind of secretly thinking, oh, I might not have to do this. I'm off the hook, you know. And um, But the journey with Austin was really like, I really feel like he found me. He found it, found the role. It's now well documented that, that he makes this tape. He shares this journey that Elvis had losing his mother early. He makes the tape. I see the tape. It's well documented, true, that Denzel Washington rings me, who I don't know, and says, you're about to meet the hardest working actor I've ever met. It's true that, that when Austin comes in, he's already way down the road. And I, interestingly enough, I realise at that moment I'm going to have to get a voice impersonator to do the young Elvis, because we can't use that footage. Can't use that song, music, because it's recorded in the wrong way for a film. And so I said, Austin, do you think you could sing it? And the screen test I just put out where people are going, like, is that really him singing? That's him singing. Now, we're going to play another scene for you. And this is not a singing scene, but it's Elvis talking to his friends. And I believe the shot is by the Hollywood sign. And he's explaining to his friends, you know, this is what they made me do. They made me cut my hair. They made me do this. People made threats about me. But I need you to help me go back to my roots. It's just kind of one of those emotional scenes really shows the, the depth of Austin in his, his acting chops. You know, back when I was starting out, some people wanted to put me in jail, even kill me, because the way I was moving. So they cut my hair, they put me in uniform, and they sent me away. I killed my mother. I've since then. I've been lost. And when you're lost, people take advantage. I need you fellas to help me get back to who I really am. And who are you, Elvis? Well, sure as hell ain't somebody who sings Christmas songs by a fireplace for an hour. And what does the colonel think? I don't give a damn what the colonel thinks. We're going to hear next from Austin, and he's going to talk about playing a real-life person because you really got to step up. You got to honor that person because there are millions of people who are familiar with that person. And also, there's those those people that he was intimate with, the close friends, and know how he really was. So this is just him talking about just trying to do it right. You want to do them justice, and you want to honor them in their life, and um, and then you add on top of that somebody who is so iconic, and who everybody knows, and and who so many people have have paid tribute to or impersonated, um, and that is, it's hard not to feel like a little kid in your dad's suit, 
like you're wearing these really big shoes that you can hardly walk in. Um, and uh, that was something that for a long time I, I thought it was impossible. Now we're going to play another scene for you. Now in this scene, Elvis is at home with a, the whole house is a buzzing with people and his friends are there and they're trying to convince him, we need to take you globally because there's a market out there and we need to find this and make this happen. And then did the scene happen? Did he ever officially try to leave the Colonel? There's mixed you know, opinions on that situation. It just, this might be just creative input, but I'm not saying it didn't happen because again, like I said earlier, I wasn't there, but I, I read, and again, it was just me reading it, that maybe this didn't happen or this, it, or didn't happen in this way, but this is his friends trying to tell Elvis, you could go big because we all know now the Colonel, he never allowed Elvis to tour anywhere out of the United States ever because the Colonel was afraid that he wouldn't be allowed back in because he might not have been an official citizen. And he goes, I'm not going to leave this country because I might not be able to get back in. So the millions upon millions, Elvis was denied because of the colonel, because of his iron grip that he had on him. He could have been just monstrously bigger. But because of the colonel, he never left the country. The furthest saver went away was Hawaii, but didn't go big time. So here's a scene, you know, maybe saying this is what could have happened if it didn't happen. Anyway, here it is. London, Germany, Japan, Hewlett here's got it all lined up. Air Presley's new wings. You know, when you play stadiums, it's like you do a week of shows in just one night. And then when it's done, you get on the plane. Go where you want, play where you want. And if they don't like it, you go someplace else. You know who told me that? B.B. King. Well, B.B. knows, man. And the someplace else you should be going is overseas. You know, I heard last year alone, you had two offers, Germany and Japan, for a million bucks for one night. I mean, why the colonel would turn that down, I have no idea, man. Well, if you figure it out, can you let us know? Well, screw it. You've got the plane now. You should use it. Maybe we should call it Louise Marie. That's a beautiful name. Right? We're going to hear next from Austin Butler, just talking a little bit more about Elvis, almost how he was like a superhuman, superhero type person. The fact that his energy was so massive. He, he was such an extraordinary human being that he almost seems uh, superhuman. Um, that seems uh, larger than, than life itself. Um, and that, uh, that's something that I've had so many people help me with over, over this, this process. I mean, starting with Baz and, and Catherine Martin and Polly Bennett, uh, with movement and, um, uh, dialect coaches and uh, every, 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 everyone down the line. There's just been such an incredible team supporting this whole process. That's, that's, um, that has been that thing of uh, how do you climb Mount Everest, but just one step at a time. Now, coming up next, we're going to hear from one of the producers, Shyler Weiss. And he's going to talk about 
when he took Austin to the official place where Elvis sang and recorded hundreds of songs and how just massive that moment really was. But when Austin came in and we went with Austin down to Nashville and did some sessions in RCA Studio B, which was as you know, it's a big studio in which Elvis recorded hundreds of songs. And the music producer, Dave Cobb, who works regularly out of that studio, pulled together just the most phenomenal session musicians working today. Some of whom had worked with musicians who had been, who had made many recordings with Elvis. And the way Austin was able to, in that space, with those musicians, bring some of this music to life, we knew we'd never need a vocal impersonator. And sometimes we are able to use Elvis's tracks because Elvis's voice is, is irreplaceable and unmistakable. And in some of those later recordings done with recording technology and techniques from the 60s and 70s, we have Elvis's voice. In the earlier stuff, we have Austin's voice, and sometimes we blend the two. And, but it's very exciting to be able to say that there are only two people singing in the movie, Elvis Presley and Austin Butler. Now we're going to hear from Austin Butler also talking about going to that studio where just hits happened. We went to Nashville and Memphis and, uh, uh, and we recorded in, in RCA where, where uh, Elvis recorded, I forgot how many songs it is now, but I want to say 240 songs or something uh, in, in Studio B there. And, uh, and so we recorded there. And it's also where Dolly Parton recorded Jolene. It was my first time ever in a recording studio. And uh, I was so nervous. And I was with some of the best musicians in Nashville. And, uh, and standing there where Elvis had recorded. And we had the actual machine that he had recorded Heartbreak Hotel on. And, um, and, uh, and I, I recorded Heartbreak Hotel in there. And Blue Suede Shoes and um, Hound Dog. And it, it, to say it was surreal is, is an, an understatement. It was, uh, it was beyond anything I could have, have comprehended, you know. Uh, and it's just such an amazing experience. Um, and, and there were moments in that where Baz actually said, it's my first day ever in a recording studio. And he said, uh, he said, all right, I want you to turn, rather than have the microphone facing the band, I'm going to turn you away from them. And we're going to get all the people from the offices of RCA to come out and be in the audience and you're going to sing to them in blue suede shoes. I was so incredibly nervous. I felt absolutely nauseous and, uh, and, but it was moments like that where, where you, you, you have to walk into the fire. Now walking into the fire, can you just imagine that? I just love that interview. Now coming up next, we're going to have a scene where Elvis is performing his comeback concert. The one, we all know the one. You're there, he's there in his leather outfit singing Jailhouse Rock. Here it is.
Now, coming up next, we're going to hear a little bit more from Austin Butler talking about performing in front of large crowds. I, I was nervous and afraid of the big numbers with tons of extras. Uh, to go out there and perform in front of a lot of people. Uh, I, before I had done it, I, I was um, filled with terror at that idea. Um, and I actually spoke to Rami Malek about it. And, um, and he said, he said, you know, those days will probably end up becoming your favorite days. And, uh, and he said that, that they, he was terrified about them in the beginning too, but they ended up becoming his. And, uh, it is, he could not be more right about that. They were so, I was terrified every time before going out there. But it was, once those first couple takes are down, and Elvis said it as well, he would say, once those first couple songs, once you do them and you kind of realize, okay, uh, nobody's going to throw a rock at me. Like, it's all okay. Uh, Then, then you feel that connection and you feel how you can play with the audience. And it becomes incredibly, it was, uh, there were days, I didn't want the days to be over. Can you imagine that, all that going on, but then finally, oh, I'm liking this, I'm really digging it. I can't even imagine going from, I'm freaking out here, to this is awesome. It's just, I just love these interviews. They they are so open and honest. I just really dig it. But coming up next, we're going to hear from Olivia Dijong, who plays Priscilla. And she's going to talk about approaching how to play this character and the challenges of playing this character. Initially, what intrigued me about Priscilla was her place in the story because initially I didn't know very much about her. I think I was I was born in 98, so I was quite past that sort of main 60s, 70s generation. Um, it was the Elvis storyline and it was Baz at first, but then once you learn about how they met and how long that they were together and the time in her life that they were together for psychologically it's just a really really interesting character to to sort of step into i think one of the biggest challenges for me when stepping into her shoes is uh her femininity which is very intrinsic quality about her and um i have a tendency whenever i feel somebody like taking a photo of me or in photo shoots to sort of hide i i don't enjoy that that sort of feeling whereas um she seems to be very comfortable in front of the camera and in a lot of those uh, home videos you sort of see her clock the camera and maybe like flirt with it a little bit. I think they were elements of her that initially I found a little bit scary and I actually worked with Polly, um, our movement coach, to sort of um, embody that a little bit more and to use it as a way to sort of empower myself rather than let it sort of weaken me in a way. Now, I don't know how these people do it sometimes when you're playing a person who still exists. They will watch your performance of them. I don't know how you could justify that or, or get it in your head without messing you up because you're playing a real-life person and a person who's legendary, and you have to try to do this. You don't want to do a caricature or just do a flat-out imitation. You still got to make the character yourself. But I just, in my mind, I can't imagine how that is if somebody came up to me and goes, you know, I want you to play me in this movie. You know, what? No, 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 I can't do it. But that's what separates being just 
you know, a real actor, somebody who will accept that challenge. And it just amazes me that somebody can, you know, get over that hill and go, yeah, okay. And I know you're still here, but I'm doing my take on you. But it just, it just always blows my mind how they, how that could be done. Now in this next scene, we're going to have a scene where Priscilla is arguing with Elvis because it's, things are not going very well at this particular juncture. And it's just her addressing it to Elvis. Well, I give you everything you could want. What I want is a husband. I am your wife. I am your wife. And Lisa is your daughter. She needs a father. I am her father. Do you remember the last time that we laughed together? Do you remember the last time that the three of us sat down and had dinner together? You won't even make love to me anymore. I give you my life, and I have nothing left in me to give you. Now, we're going to hear next from Patrick McCormick, one of the producers of this film. And he's going to talk about just the monstrous level of commitment Austin had to bring to this project. But also, at, at a certain time, production was halted due to all the COVID stuff going on in the world. And then their concern was, oh man, now that he's away from it, will he still be able to be at the top of his game? And he just addresses how Austin is so driven, so focused, that he even used that time even more to really buckle down and just find the nuances of Elvis. So when he, when he was playing him on stage... You can just think it's him. And it's just really kind of cool hearing a producer talk about that. The performance that Austin delivered as Elvis on stage was, I think, beyond, beyond expectation, even though we all had high expectations. Uh, and, you know, the other part of wading through this, this COVID period, this shutdown, this hiatus period. One of the other great concerns is that we knew that Austin was, was preparing himself with, uh, in great detail and, and with great discipline. And you felt like this was, this was uh, an Olympian athlete ready for his, for his, his uh, comp- you know, the big event. And all of a sudden it's delayed. And you, you have this fear that it all that energy, all that momentum is going to somehow be lost and dissipate. And, and so as we got back into it in September, he only got better. Now, speaking of just getting better and better, I think he probably u- utilized that time just to hone that, re- that, that routine over and over again. Because can you imagine the stress, the huge responsibility of trying to be Elvis? Because... Elvis is iconic. The whole world knows who Elvis is. So you got to perform because everybody has an image of what they see Elvis was. Yes, there was sometimes that you could look at video of what he did and the performances. And I can't even imagine what that young man had to deal with. So up next, we're going to have another scene for you. In this scene, we have Austin Butler, who plays Elvis. He's on stage in Vegas. But while this is happening... In the audience, you have Tom Hanks, who plays the colonel. He's writing down on a piece of paper the contract that he wants for Elvis. And this whole time, he's just writing it down. He's up there singing. And at the end of that scene, after he proposes what he's going to get paid, or what he wants Elvis to get paid, the colonel goes, well, that's what my boy expects. 
but what are you going to pay me? And I would love to find out the true, true essence of the colonel. Who was he? What was he like? And, you know, I'm sure there's people out there who know, and but they don't, they don't want to smirge the image or the, how they participated in it. But I wonder what the colonel knew about Elvis and his downfall. Was he aware of it? Did he care? Did he even try to intervene? We'll probably never know. But it's so fascinating. But here's that scene. Why can't you see? Oh, oh, oh what's it doing to me? would expect the suspicious mind. Now? <laughs> what are you going to pay me? Suspicious mind. <laughs> now coming up next, we're going to hear from Austin Butler, who plays Elvis, and he's going to say what he feels the audience will take away from this film, or what he hopes people take away from this film. And I hope they have a good time and uh, connect to music that maybe they didn't uh, know before or, or uh, have an experience where they get to see see it through new eyes or um, I, I hope that they they come out feeling more vibrant and uh, and and hopeful now from the red carpet we're going to hear from Lisa Marie Presley and her daughter and they're going to talk about what this movie means to them and how important they think this movie is and I just can't even imagine for them being related to him. They have, you know, or at least Lisa Marie has memories of him about how she feels about her father being, you know, portrayed on film because it's been done a lot. And, you know, there's things that she knows that maybe she's never talked about and, the, and the, it won't, you know, share with anybody else. But it must be just so particular, like, wow, I'm watching my parents up there being portrayed and how is that based in reality or just on fiction? Because no matter what kind of movie you're making, you're going to make little creative differences or your own little you know, narrative, if you will. But this is them talking about this whole movie. It means everything to us. It truly does. The movie does. This means everything. All of it. It's, it's so important. It's so important to this generation. It's so important right now. It, it, the, the movie it covers such a span of important, important issues. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important film. It really is. It's not just a great, it's not because it's my father. I'm not saying that. I'm truly, it's a very important film that's been made. And it's a very, this is a very important moment in history. And we're truly, truly honored. It's very surreal um, to be here, to be able to be here all together. You know, I don't know how many times that's happened um, where you get to be here with your sisters and your mother and your grandmother. Um, to experience it together has been really uh, special. And with Austin and um, Baz, who are just so wonderful and just want to honor um, my grandfather and are doing such an amazing job at doing that. They've done it, and they've done it with so much love. You know, Austin and Baz and 
they've done it with so much love and so much respect. Now, that was Lisa Marie and her daughter. Up next, we have Priscilla Presley. I would kill to sit down and just have an open conversation with her. Because again, just like with her daughter and granddaughter, you know, they're not going to say everything that happened in their life because it's personal. But I would like to sign any confidentiality thing or whatever, you know, NDA, whatever it is. But can you imagine what really went down in their world, what she experienced? Because she was such a young woman when she met Elvis. You know, allegedly he treated her with the utmost respect when they were very young or when she was very young. But you just wonder, how did that world work? How did that relationship evolve? It must be just so crazy for her to have the whole world worship this one person that she was in love with. And then again, watching it being portrayed on film. And you know it's not exactly how it was, because you can't do that. That's totally impossible. But then just seeing it happen again. So I totally respect anybody who allows their loved one to be portrayed in a film, because that can't be easy. You must be sitting there watching it going, oh man, I remember that. And it might be, you know, 20, 30, whatever years ago that it was, but you know the emotion's still there. And just having it relived and have everybody being a peeping Tom, for lack of a better word, into your world and making their own judgments. So this is Priscilla Presley talking about the movie. It's a great feeling. We're all together. We've all enjoyed this amazing film together. We're really happy about the film. And um, we're looking forward, actually, to sharing it now with America. Well, first of all, I know, you know, Baz is an amazing, um, amazing director and also writer. Um, I've always liked his film. They're a little bit, you know, they're Baz Luhrmann films. I mean, he has his own take on things, uh, on life uh, and his films. And I was a little nervous at first because he kind of does his own thing, but the product has been truly worth the wait in gold. It's uh, an amazing film. I just can't even imagine the story she could tell and what, you know, she just keeps inside. It must be just a treasure trove of knowledge and information, but, you know, probably so incredibly emotional that, you know, it must be hard to share. But that's just really cool interview. Now, I hope you enjoyed our in-depth look at Elvis. Now, if you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, any way to improve the show, please feel free. Contact me, cinemajudge at hotmail.com, because I can't grow if I don't know. Now, if you want to watch the TV version of this, go to the City of Bloomington, Minnesota's webpage, or go to bit.ly backwards slash Cinema Judge, and that should take you right to that page where I have a whole bunch of shows there available to you. But now, it's one of my favorite parts of the show. It's where I thank you, the listeners, whoever listened to my last episode. I won't be able to name all of you, but I'll try to get to as many as I possibly can. And if you listen to my back catalog and you say, why didn't he mention me? It's because when I do this, it's just mentioning the last episode but don't think for one second I don't appreciate everybody who listens to the, like, whether it be two episodes ago, three episodes ago, or from two years ago. When I see something like that show up, I just I just get overjoyed. It's so wonderful to see that you're still looking at other movies. You might suddenly say, hey, what about this movie? I want to I I hear more about it. And 
I'm just overjoyed when you do that. So don't think for one second I don't appreciate that. It's just harder to find out where you listen to when it's that old of an episode. But when it's last week's episode, it's a lot easier to tell. So if you don't want me to mention where you're listening to, just listen to a past episode. But now, for all the listeners who stay around for the shoutouts, this is for you. For all of you all around the world, I hope my voice finds you well. For all of you listening, driving to work, while you're at work, at home, relaxing, laying in bed, whatever you're doing, I am so grateful that you take time out of your life to listen to this show. It is outstanding. Because sometimes I sit here, here it's in the middle of the night, I'm just talking to nobody, just talking, I try to focus maybe on one person, because I'm not a, a, a group guy, but I sit here listen, or I sit here and talk to, I try to focus on maybe one person. And you might be listening to the show the day after this drops, or maybe two months later, or a year later. But whatever it is, welcome aboard. I am so happy to have you along for the ride. So wherever, whenever, or whatever you're doing, this is for you. To all my listeners from the United States, United Kingdom, a lot of you from the United Kingdom, Germany also, Sri Lanka, Uzbekistan, St. Paul, Minnesota, Chicago, Illinois, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Madison, Wisconsin, Kansas City, Kansas, Mitchum, Merton, Park Rapids, Minnesota, Columbus, Ohio, Pasadena, California, Littleton, Colorado, Holyoke, Mass, Chaska, Minnesota, Chanhassen, Minnesota, Bergenfield, New Jersey, Frankfurt, AM, Maine, Hess, Colombo, Colombo District, and Tashkent. Is that right? Tashkent. To all of you. Thank you so much. And those who I didn't mention, I am very grateful. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. You guys are awesome. Now, this week's bourbon shout-out goes all to a double shot. Two of you. First of all, Kirsten. And you even wrote it down specifically for me. Like, Beerston. Not Kirsten or Kristen, but Kirsten. Thank you so much. I had such a great time talking to you. It was so great to hear that your son is such a huge Stephen King fan like I was when I was a young kid. See, like I was talking to her, ladies and gentlemen, her 11-year-old son is a major Stephen King fan. And I remember how that felt when I grew up. Ah, just sinking my teeth into Stephen King books was just incredible. So hearing somebody else's kid who's as much of a fan as I was is just so cool to hear. So Kirsten, here's to you. And also, I want to give a special shout out to Kira. You were a fantastic help when I went to Rock Bottom Brewery in Minneapolis. You were just very helpful, informative. I was going to the Roger Waters concert, and you were just awesome. You served some great drinks, great food. And ladies and gentlemen, she's, she wants to be a, an audio engineer for music. And it's so cool to hear about that because, you know, that stuff, we, we, as you well know, I'm a major music fanatic in hearing somebody who's young and coming up and going, this is what I want to do with my life. It's just exciting to see the future right, right before me because who knows where you're going to end up. It was just fun to talk to you about that whole business and how you know difficult it is to get in that world. So to both of you, cheers. But now it's the music section. And what else am I going to listen to? I'm doing a show on Elvis. I couldn't listen to anybody else. So when I was making this show, it was nothing but Elvis. 
you know, greatest hits, this selection, that selection. I was all over the place. Not even one specific album, but I was just throwing down Elvis the whole time I was making the TV version, which becomes this, you know, podcast. So, of course, I couldn't go anywhere else. It had to be Elvis. So that's what I was listening to when I was making this episode. Well, that is it. My glass awaits. I'm thirsty. So cheers to you and to movies. So until next time, be well, be good, and I'm gone. I'm Jeff. Thanks for listening to The Cinema Judge. (laughs) 